The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I've been giving a series of talks, many of you know this, on equanimity. And this is the fourth of the four divine abodes that the Buddha often referred to. These four divine abodes or four lovely uh, immeasurable qualities of the heart. Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. One of the things the Buddha once said, or something like this, that these are the four emotions that are worthy. You don't need any others. <laughs> so we can imagine cultivating a mind that expresses itself as loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. You know, there are other flavors. We somehow we forgiveness fits in there, and patience, and gratitude maybe, and others. And the question for all of these, or any wholesome state, is to avoid the sense that I have to be compassionate or I have to be equanimous, which tends to lead to self-judgment and a kind of striving or a kind of imitation that doesn't really help much. So in, in general, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a real emphasis on understanding the causes and conditions that support certain expressions of the mind or certain qualities in our lives. So we're, we're just seeing that what, what are the proximate causes for equanimity to arise in the heart, to arise in the mind? Or what are the supporting causes and conditions for the opposite of equanimity? Let's call that reactivity to arise in the mind. So that we can skillfully uproot those tendencies that lead to reactivity and cultivate tendencies or cultivate uh, qualities that support the arising of equanimity. So that's what I've been talking about over the last few weeks and I gave the group four ways to reflect. They're really this, just different ways of remembering equanimity because a lot of the, the way that any wholesome quality arises is just opening to things as they are. This is, in a sense, the proximate cause for everything wholesome is to be really mindful or present with the truth. So what is fundamentally transforming for our unwholesome or unskillful mind states is to see things as they are. And what supports more unwholesome mind states, more delusion, is to misperceive things as they are. So if you want to support more delusion and suffering in your life, then cultivate misperceiving things. And if you'd like to cultivate uh, uh, sort of insight and all the wholesome qualities, then we cultivate clear seeing, which sometimes we call mindfulness. And in a way, it's the engine of this whole path that the Buddha taught. I mean, he taught many things, not just mindfulness. But in a way, it all comes down to using awareness. So even though the Buddha made a big uh, emphasis on ethical conduct, the way we cultivate better ethical conduct, a greater degree of non-harming in the world, more generosity in our relationships and in, in the world, is by paying attention. We have more and more subtle ways that we're stingy, and more and more subtle ways when the heart really is generous like the generosity of being forgiving, or the generosity of being patient, or the generosity of really listening to somebody, so that we just discover it by paying attention, by being mindful. So to learn more about equanimity, it's just a question, well, what do we specifically, what do we need to be mindful of that supports that great, vast, impartial, spacious, allowing mind, which we call equanimity. Because there's something we open to that promotes or supports equanimity. And I've been talking about impermanence as that one thing. When 
we open to the truth of change, to the truth of flux, to the truth that life is falling through our fingers even as we speak. That's, you know, there are many different ways to open to this quality of impermanence, but when we do, when we see it clearly, when we don't misperceive the truth of change, the heart just lets go. That's equanimity. The heart lets go of clinging or grasping, and equanimity arises. And the clinging or grasping arises when we misperceive, when we take what's impermanent to be permanent. So, for example, if somebody... Um, insults me, you know, stands up and says, this is a stupid talk, I'm out of here, and then leaves. And if I grasp that, that statement that the person made, in a sense, I'm taking it as permanent, like it refers to me. So there's, it's like uh, creating something true. There's an essential me that that person was talking about, and I'm the guy he was talking about, and he's the guy who was talking about me. And we sort of solidified the experience. And then that is the cause for grasping to rise, clinging. We cling to having been the harmed person, cling to the self-righteous person who shouldn't have to deal with these people who don't know what they're talking about or whatever. But if we have this view, if we're seeing things more clearly, then that person standing up and saying something is just what it is. It's this momentary arising, visual experience, auditory experience, and even the emotional reaction. So even if there is an emotional reaction of shame or humiliation or self-righteousness or anger, that also is just a temporary arising and passing. So we're not putting any breaks. We're not like picking or choosing. So opening to impermanence is also opening to not being in control. See, the only reason we feel we need to be in control is we feel like life becomes something in a solid, permanent way. Well, then we definitely want to control it so it doesn't go in the bad direction. It goes in the good direction. But if our understanding, if our perception is that life is very fluid and changing, it doesn't matter if we go to a bad place because it won't be long before we go to something else. So, for example, when I have a really uh, clear view of things, it doesn't, it doesn't, my mind doesn't react when some despicable thought comes into my mind. And I have some bad thought about another person, you know. Because, because in that moment, I know that's just a thought. And it isn't saying something about me permanently. It's not defining me or that person. It's just this thought, this particular nasty, despicable thought. And my mind can know that it will arise and it will cease, pass away on its own without the, my mind reacting. But if I take it seriously, permanently, if I'm not seeing the truth of change, then when it arises, I'm either going to think I'm a despicable person for having this thought and then react to that thought, or this is true, that person, and then react to that. But we can just see everything as being really fluid. Same with when we get sick. You know, the illness, we start feeling the glands getting swollen, the throat gets tight, and, and we can freak out because even though intellectually we know we won't be sick forever, or there's a good probability we won't be sick forever. The mind sort of sees the oncoming cold as some permanent truth. And then we react, no. But if we just realize the very natural, you know, that we, the body falls into the state of discomfort and illness, and then health reestablish itself, and and it doesn't keep us from, you know, taking our garlic tablets or vitamin C or whatever we might do. But it, it means that we're just not grasping life. So this is the essence of learning how to evoke, learning how to um, encourage this natural 
and inherent quality of equanimity is by knowing what to pay attention to. See, mostly we go through life avoiding seeing change, the changingness of all things. Joko Beck has this great chapter in one of my favorite Dharma books called Nothing Special. Joko Beck is this great matriarch of American Buddhism. <laughs> I think she worked at one of the state universities in California for a long time, like as an office worker or manager of one of the departments there and secretary slash office person and and all the time practicing Zen um, with a teacher and at some point you know raising kids on her own I think and uh, her practice just came together and she's just this wonderful teacher now mid to late 80s and she's got a center in the suburbs of San Diego right in some ordinary rambler <laughs> She says sometimes that they do their formal walking practice around the block, and it's sort of weird, you know, here in this very ordinary suburb of San Diego. But you can get away with things like that in California, maybe. <laughs> anyway, her book is Nothing Special, Living Zen. It's a really wonderful book if you want to get a hold of it. And uh, somewhere in the middle of the book, there's a chapter called Experiences and Experiencing. And she's just talking about one particular way to encourage our minds to see change. So we don't realize how hard we work at not seeing change. So actually, this is the easy way, but it's not our habit. So it seems like a lot of work at first to notice this. Our habit is to keep immediately turning our experience into a set of concepts. So instead of really being intimate with what's happening now, we have this interpretation that we don't even notice that some goes like something like this, I'm at common ground. But those are thoughts, those are concepts. And as concepts, they, they have a permanence. I'm at common ground, that's like a noun. And it, but common ground isn't a thing, although a lot of you would argue with me. But it's a process. I mean. Can you find the common ground in the common ground? Where is common ground? It's this happening, but there isn't a thing here. And so this is how she uses these two words. Experiences is when we're misperceiving and we're taking our concepts or interpretation of our life to be some absolute truth. Experiencing it refers to when we're not caught by the concepts or the interpretations in the mind and we're in the more direct experience of changingness or flow. So there's seeing, there's hearing, there's sensations being known, thoughts being known. And so if we were skillful enough with our language, we could just always use a verb to describe our experience, our reality. So let me, I'll read a few sections here and there during the talk tonight. You can hold it far enough away, I forgot my glasses. At each second we are at a crossroad between unawareness and awareness, between being absent and being present, or between experiences and experiencing. Practice is about moving from the experiences to experiencing. What is meant by this? I'm going to be skipping around. Ordinarily, we see our lives as a series of experiences. For example, I have an experience of one or another person, an experience of my lunch or my office. From this point of view, my life is nothing but having one experience after another. Entwined around each experience, there may be a slight halo or a neurotic emotional veil. Often the veil takes the form of memories, fantasies, or hopes for the future, the associations we bring to experience as a result of our past conditioning. So this is what I mentioned earlier, it's really important. So as soon as I turn this experience into I'm at common ground, or some variation of that concept, then because of my memories, because of my conditioning, I'm gonna to react to that concept. 
because that concept is a reality for me now. I'm at common ground. And I don't like being at common ground now, but I feel like I should be here. I'd rather be watching the Olympics or something like that. So that's my reaction. Or you think this is a very holy place, you know, and everybody here is really holy except me. And so that may be your emotional veil. And then that's a reaction to the concept. So inevitably, if we have a concept we're living inside of, we're going to have a reaction to the concept we're living inside of. And this is this this real endless loop that we find ourselves in, where we have a concept and a reaction to the concept, which in a way is another concept, and then a reaction to that. And it goes on and on, and it keeps removing us from life. In another book, I think it's in a different book of uh, Joko Beck's, um, she talks about the superstructure we built, and she uses this image of like, we've got a perfectly fine house, and what do we do? We build a house around that perfectly fine house. And all of a sudden, the house we live in starts to become very dark and dank because we've gone ahead and built another house around it. And this is the superstructure, and this is just another image to sort of uh, express this tendency we have to live inside of our concepts. And then when we're in a concept, we react to it, and that just further removes us, kind of supports the separation. So she goes on, when we clothe our experience with these associations, however, experience becomes an object, a noun rather than a verb. So our life becomes, uh, so our lives become encounters with one object after another persons, my lunch, my office, memories and hopes. Memories and hopes are similar. Life becomes a series of this and that. We ordinarily see our lives as encounters with things out there. Life becomes dualistic, subject and object, me and that. And then she has this great line. There's no problem with this process unless we believe it. <laughs> right? So it's not the conceptualizing itself that's the problem. Right? Because otherwise, you know, we could just find a good surgeon and eliminate the part of the brain that is able to conceptualize experience, that creates, uses and creates language. But the problem is how we relate to that language. We take it, in, in Buddhist terms, we take it as self. So when we have a concept floating around in the mind or arising in the mind, that concept is seen as self, meaning it's, we, there's an, an imputation of, of reality to it that it doesn't deserve. It's not that the concept isn't useful, but it's not useful as, as some absolute truth. I'm at common ground. That happened to me. Concepts are useful if we remember that they're just representing an unfolding process, an ephemeral happening. Then, then there's no confusion. But when we take the concept to be more than that, then we feel very much, if the reactions to the concepts feel very appropriate, and the reactions to the reactions feel very appropriate. And before long, we're totally lost and tight because of all this reactivity. The trouble with this way of living is that what benefits me now may hurt me later or vice versa. The world is constantly changing, and so our associations lead us astray. There's nothing safe about a world of objects. We're constantly wary even of those people whom we say we love and are close to. As long as another person is an object to us, we can be sure that there's no genuine love or compassion between us. And this point goes a lot deeper, and I think she covers that, but I just want to talk about this. So when, you know, there's, there's very clearly in our world a lot of paranoia, a lot of conspiracy sort of ideas, a lot of reactivity. And the reason that we're so neurotic is that we're living in a world of our interpretations or our concepts. And so 
and we take those to be the world. But they're not the world. So in a kind of funny way, it's like we're living in a world of menus and we're wondering why we're so hungry. We've got a lot of really wonderful menus, but we're not really eating. We're just looking at menus. So we have a lot of impressive concepts, but we're not really living. We're thinking about our interpretations or the concepts instead of actually being life being the unfolding experience, knowing the unfolding experience. And so we get neurotic because we feel alienated. And we wonder, why do I feel so alienated? Why does life feel so hollow? Why does nothing seem to work? Why can't I really connect with my life, with my body, with my partner? And, and the reason is we're missing life. It's, it's true. We're actually seeing something truthful. We're seeing, you know, this is the first noble truth. We're seeing the unsatisfactoriness of living in a world of concepts and interpretations. So that part is really a kind of uh, a strand of wisdom. But we think that, the, the, but we misinterpret what we see. So we do feel the dukkha. We do feel the unsatisfactoriness. But we, what we end up doing is we just try harder to find meaning in our concepts and our interpretations. Try to rearrange them, try you know different concepts, different interpretations, instead of opening more directly to the moment, connecting directly with our life, with the changingness of the present moment. It's, a, it's like moving into wilderness. See, because of the familiarity we have with concepts and interpretations, it's like civilization. We feel comfortable here. But when we open to life as it is, this place where we don't have control because it's constantly in flux and changing, it's like a wilderness. We feel a little naked and unfamiliar, or a lot naked and unfamiliar, and we tend to rush back to our interpretations and concepts. So it's like, uh, this is often the case where there's always a little wisdom. You know, we see people, often we, it's easier for us to see it in other people than in ourselves. But it's, of course, equally true in ourselves. But we tend to see in other people a lot of neurosis, a lot of insanity. But if we're careful, if we really are honest, we'll see that there's some wisdom. Like, like for example, wanting to be happy. There's some real wisdom. Now, what we do about that desire to be happy can be quite insane. But the wish to be happy, the belief that happiness is possible, is a kind of wisdom. Or noticing, like I said a few minutes ago, how unsatisfying experience is. That, there's sort of a breath of real wisdom there. But our, inter our sort of reaction or the, what we do about that experience of unsatisfactoriness often arises out of our ignorance. We don't, we don't sit long enough with the experience of unsatisfactoriness to let it teach us something. We already think we know what to do with it. That's the problem. It's kind of a, a kind of arrogance. We, this sort of instinctual belief that the way we've done things in the past is the right way. And mindfulness is actually an uprooting of that. It's, it's and replacing that arrogance with a kind of humility that goes something like, I don't know what the hell's going on, so I'm going to pay attention. You know, bring, kind of do basic research into experience, to the nature of the mind, the nature of experience, so that there's some greater clarity about how it is that this experience of unsatisfactoriness comes to be. So maybe we'll make different choices then. Having experiences is our ordinary world. What is the other world, the other fork in the road? What is the difference between experiences and experiencing? What is genuine hearing, touching, tasting, seeing, and so on? When, when experiencing occurs in that very moment, experiencing is not in space or time. 
Excuse me. It can't be. For when it is in, when it's in space or time, we've made an object of it. As we touch and look and hear, we're creating the world of space and time. Right? When we touch or hear or think, it's already it's existing as a dualistic concept. I'm having an experience. I'm trying to be mindful. I'm really trying to open to experience. So, of course, that may be a relatively useful concept if it leads to going beyond that dualistic notion. So the, the essence of any mindfulness practice is to go, no, even though it may be useful to sort of initially conceive of the practice of being the witness, being the observer, being the one who's mindful, we want to go beyond that so that there's just the knowing, just the seeing, just the thoughting, just the whatever the activity is. And if there's a strong sense of a somebody doing it, you can call that selfing. It's like creating a somebody who's doing something. That's called selfing. And that's a present moment happening that can be known. Selfing is like this. Thinking is like this. Worrying is like this. Moving is like this. The life we lead is not in space or time, right? Because those are concepts. It's just experiencing. The world of space and time arises when experiencing becomes reduced to a series of experiences. In the precise moment of hearing, for example, there is just hearing. Hearing, 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 which creates the sound of the airplane or whatever. And then later, in the service we do, one of the dedication states, unceasing change turns the wheel of life. Right? Unceasing change turns the wheel of life. I mentioned last week how impermanence really is the essence of the Buddhist teachings. One of my favorite discourses, one of the discourses of the Buddha, he states, Immeasurable is this onflow. The earliest point cannot be known. As beings, obscured by ignorance, are tied and tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. For a very long time indeed have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, and swelled the charnel grounds. It has surely been long enough to become disenchanted, long enough to become disengaged, and here he means disengaged with our concepts long enough to become free from all formations, right? All of those fixed views, those fixed notions. Formations are so impermanent. Formations are so unstable. Formations are so disappointing. So it's, you could just substitute the word concepts, interpretations, are so impermanent, so unstable, so disappointing. So what do we do? We just regenerate them. Because they're unstable, they're disappointing, they're unsatisfying, we just keep reproducing them, thinking that the next set of concepts, interpretations, will bring us some real satisfaction. And another place in one of her books, Jokobek calls this the promise that's never kept. This is a promise that's never kept, that somehow, in thinking about my life one more time, all of a sudden, it will make sense in some lasting, permanent way. We keep going back to the same strategy, which is thinking about our problems, thinking about our hopes and dreams, instead of living. We keep missing the, the living, which is only happening here and now, beyond the concepts of space and time, beyond the concepts of me and you, just living, just like sitting and hearing right now, or feeling the breeze, just the vibration of the body, just the buzz of life, the beingness, or being, maybe we should keep it in INGs, this being, instead of like, is this good enough? Am I doing it right? How long, is this going to be over too soon, you know, and I have to go back to my miserable apartment? Or, so 
right then and there we're lost. We're really really in a hell realm all of a sudden, as soon as we're in those. And what, what really deludes us is sometimes we have a relatively pleasant hell realm. You know, we imagine a future and there's some excitement there. And so we get reinvested. We kind of re-energize our faith and the ability of our mind to conceptualize happiness. But those ideas of some wonderful future, they're hollow. It's like there is a sweetness. Like when I imagine a perfect future for myself, there's like a, a veneer of sweetness. But it, it, it really leaves us hollow and hungry and unsatisfied the more we dwell on those kind of ideas of possibilities for ourselves. In this passage ends, the Buddha then uttered this verse, how impermanent formations are. Their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. So here, happiness comes from not feeding the concepts. And the way we feed the concepts is by getting identified. The mind attaching, clinging, grasping to these concepts, taking them to be more than what they are. And the calming of them comes from just letting them come and go, but not misinterpreting them. They're just thoughts. It's just emotion. It's just what it is. It's actually just what it is. I mean, what actually is a thought? It's such an ephemeral happening. I mean, if you actually see a thought with mindfulness, it is, it is uh, earth-shaking in a way. I mean, in terms of our own being, it really rocks our reality when we see how ephemeral a thought is. And of course, we have to have that insight thousands of times where we sort of chip away at the momentum to take our thoughts to be more than what they are. Now, again, I'm not saying that thoughts aren't anything. Thoughts are thoughts. They're exactly what they are, but they're not more than what they are. It's just a little blip of energy based on past conditioning. That's all it is. But we immediately, through this process of attachment identification, we, in some sort of magical way, give it a weight that we then react to. And that sets in motion the cycle of suffering that Buddha calls samsara that goes on and on. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. For a very long time indeed have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, swelled the charnel grounds, the graveyards. It surely has been long enough to become disenchanted, long enough to become disengaged, long enough to become free from all of this mental stuff, mental uh, proliferation. And the Buddha said, you know, what motivated him, what moved him to teach, because when he first had his, this deep insight under the Bodhi tree, it was so, what he woke up to, what he came to realize was what it occurred to him to be, it seemed to him to be so subtle that nobody was going to get it. Like, you know, that these thoughts are just thoughts, you know, that people were, yeah, I know that thoughts are just thoughts. But to really point this out to people, he thought no one would get it. But what really motivated him was exactly this insight. So after his own insight, he reflected on all of his own past, but then psychically kind of getting where everybody's at and seeing that everybody wants to be happy, just like I wanted to be happy. But they're doing exactly what leads to unhappiness. In their quest for happiness, all these beings are doing exactly what leads to more unhappiness. They're getting attached to their thoughts of being an unhappy person, a person who wants to be happy. So the trick is, we need that thought to, well, I'm a guy who wants to be happy. That's an important thought. But we want that thought not to lead to us seeking happiness in our thoughts and our thoughts about who I am and what I want. But we want that thought, I'm a guy who wants to be happy, to inspire us to do basic research. What do I mean by I'm? What do I mean by guy? What do I mean? What is the experience those thoughts are referring to? So we're going back to the direct experiencing. Because 
the place for basic research is always here and now. We've got this life right here to, to kind of do the research with. And so if we do that with the thought, I'm a guy who wants to be happy, then we'll have success. And, and the Buddha seeing this, like people do have that thought, I'm a guy who wants to be happy, I'm a person who wants to be happy, but to go the wrong direction with that thought. And that's what really motivated him, to see that, well, maybe if I can talk about this, he used more thoughts, right? Because the Dhamma, in terms of the teachings of the Buddha, it's just more thoughts, more concepts. But maybe I can generate a set of concepts, of teachings, that would inspire people to, to do this sort of backward step, instead of doing what they're inclined to do out of habit, but to start doing this basic research what is the experience of being a guy who wants to be happy? And then we start entering that world of change. And out of the <clears throat> in doing that, we start to realize greater and greater equanimity. The spaciousness and fearlessness and impartial, um, <clears throat> really, this impartiality that comes from trusting the conditional impermanent and constant nature, lawful nature of experience. So experiencing, I mean experiencing, yeah, experiencing itself isn't a problem. Like being in this world of change isn't a problem. The problem is we don't, we expect things to be other than what they are. So we're constantly, there's this constant tension where we want the world to be solid, but it's a it's a process of change. So and then we feel dissatisfied and anxious and fearful. And so we try harder to see the world as something real and fixed when it's fundamentally, unavoidably, forever a flow of change. There isn't anything that's a thing. It's just process. And actually, that's fine. There's no problem with that, except if we think it shouldn't be that way, or if it isn't that way. And then we create this existential tension that we live with. And I'll talk one more week about uh, impermanence and equanimity, but there's about uh, 15 minutes now for people to share from your own practice what you've been learning over these past weeks, or longer even than that, or questions you have about the talk tonight, insights into impermanence you'd like to share with the group, or equanimity, or what's in the way of equanimity, what you've noticed is in the way. Is it Julie? I forget. Yeah. Julie. Uh, where does Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> it kind of depends where that thought comes from. If I'm a guy and I have hope, often, usually that thought uh, is going to create problems. Because then if I have hope, then generally whatever that thought is that is the cause for the hope to arise, I'm going to grasp it. But there's another kind of hope. I mean, I think it's okay to use the same word, but maybe you want a different word. Um, like uh, refuge is often what we use in Buddhism, our aspiration based on our experience, where it's, it's really a kind of trust or refuge. Like we trust life. We, we trust that life, that, it's a, that life is something worthy of surrender, of opening, of letting go. Like I, someone, uh, Adam, the office manager, gave me this book by a Zen teacher. Actually, he's a, a student, one of the senior students of Joko Beck, who's now a well-known teacher himself. I forget his name right now. But it, the first chapter of his book is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but it's, it's really about the basis of practice is hope. 
I want to be happy. It has happiness in the title. It's something about like the futility or the unsatisfactoriness of trying to be happy. But what he's pointing to is this more this place where the hope or wanting to be happy is coming from a deluded notion. So what we're, we're, we're going to discover is that the way to happiness is realizing that there isn't a- anything broke. And the cause for unhappiness is the deep arrogance we have that it's broke, that life is broke, and we got to fix it. And the tension that we create, the constriction we create in trying to fix something that ain't broke creates the suffering. Because, for example, just putting it in more philosophical terms or existential terms, if I feel alienated and I desperately want to go beyond that feeling of alienation, so I seek the resolution of the alienation in the world, in my relationships with my friends, in uh, food that I eat, in wealth, and being loved and respected by others, I'll never be satisfied. That existential feeling of alienation will never be quenched. Now, I might distract myself from it to some degree, but it's like you need more and more success. You know, once you have a little success, that quenches the, the feeling of alienation for a while, but then you need some more success. Right? This should be familiar to us. And so uh, the, what we realize, though, with, with this kind of other practice, the spiritual practice, is that the whole premise that I'm a being separated from the divine, or however you want to language it, hasn't been looked at. So all the solutions we had to the feeling of alienation, to the experience, experience of alienation, isn't based on actually seeing what the problem is. And so we've been trying to fix a problem that ain't a problem. So in Buddhism, we want to really get to know the problem. That's why the Buddha set up this set of practices. The first noble truth is not, a, not an absolute truth. It's, it's really meant to be a way of reflecting. There is dukkha. Start there. And the Buddha breaks this down into three insights. There is dukkha. It's relevant. That's the second insight. To see that this dukkha is not a problem, it's relevant. It's something to understand. And then the third insight in that first noble truth is it has been understood. So instead of running from dukkha, instead of trying to explain it away, I'm really open to it. And so this is the kind of backward step. So the answer is yes and no. Hope can lead to suffering, but there is hope. There is a resolution to our suffering. But it isn't trying to escape our suffering. It's an understanding what the nature of suffering is. If we just try to escape it, our our attempt to escape suffering is based on ignorance, on misperception. And so it doesn't work. It's just frustrating. And we keep doing what's frustrating, banging our head against the door. There's a great Rumi poem about sort of... uh, pounding on the door, knocking on the door, you know, and finally, I'm just obviously destroying the poem, but (laughs) (laughs) the last line is I'm realizing I've been knocking from the inside, which is just great. It's a wonderful little poem, I think, translated by Coleman Barks. Thanks, Julie. Other thoughts people have for the group? Mm -hmm. I forgot your name. Casey. Casey. When you talk about suffering, it seems like we're talking self-induced suffering in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's also something that's not, or at least I don't think there's self-induced suffering like the loss of a child or something like that. Yeah. So let's call that, just to make it easier to talk about, let's call that pain, like the pain of loss, the, phys- the pain of physical injury. So we'll call that pain. There is pain in life. Pain is unavoidable in existence in human life. Suffering is avoidable. And so suffering is what the mind does in reaction to the very ordinary ups and downs of life. We suffer when we grasp what's pleasant and we suffer when we grasp to get away from what's unpleasant, like loss of a child. 
that suffering, there's something we can do about that. But the actual feeling of loss is just what it is, and it's appropriate to call it unpleasant. But see, we have to keep an open mind about what unpleasantness is. So I'm not saying that loss isn't unpleasant or will ever become anything but unpleasant. But we only know right now unpleasantness from a self-centered point of view, meaning we take the experience of unpleasantness to be more than what it is. So the Buddha, as the sort of example of a perfectly enlightened being, he experienced loss, you know, while he was an awakened, fully enlightened being. But it's hard to imagine what that's like, like what does loss feel like when we're not conceptualizing a story that this happened to me? What does it feel like to lose a child without conceptualizing the experience? The Buddha's phrase, when he lost his, when uh, he found out that his two chief disciples had died, Moggallana and Sariputta, he said it's as if the sun and moon have been removed from the sky. It's kind of a poignant statement. Clearly, he noticed that they're gone, you know. It was a big deal. But at the same time, he didn't suffer, apparently. So that's just kind of like a koan for us, what that would mean. And we can just start to explore that with very ordinary pain. This is what so much of sitting practice is to notice emotional pain, like uh, restlessness and irritation and judging mind, or physical pain, which happens especially when we start to sit a little bit longer. And then we can, we'll just see, there will be, when our practice deepens, we'll see how we can flash back and forth to uh, pain, and I'm a guy suffering with this pain. You know, so there's the pain of restlessness or the pain of physical pain. And then, as soon as we take it personally, then there's the pain and the identification and everything that flows from that. But actually we find that just pain without the identification, without the dualistic notions, is very tolerable. Now, I'm not saying that we prefer pain. I'm just saying that it's, uh, we'll learn that you can sit for a long time with pain and restlessness and uh, painful memories. But if you take it personally, it's hard to sit. You're going to want to get up and leave. So this is what we learn in a very ordinary way. This is really the basic curriculum of sitting practice, is to learn the difference between the normal ups and downs of life as experiencing and as a painful experience or a pleasurable experience and taking it personally and getting attached and how difficult it is to be just composed and at ease with it. And just, and we'll just see, and the, and, the, and the barometer for it is, is there suffering or not? We begin to really understand the presence or absence of suffering in the heart. Is the heart constricted or weighed down or not? Is the heart light and free or weighed down and constricted? By whatever it is that's happening. And you'll see that there are times you're in a really difficult situation, but the heart isn't constricted or weighed down. And there's times when you're in a really good place, and the heart's very constricted like you're on vacation, or people are loving you, but the heart gets tight, I don't deserve this, or it won't last, you know, and so we conceptualize the experience, we're not just receiving what's happening. Thanks, Casey. Did somebody else have a hand up back there? Well, I did. Tom. So, there's a couple minutes left, five minutes. Uh, uh, I, I guess it's a fear of maybe having to explain it. <laughs> I don't think I can, but I often during the sitting and talk, I often come to the conclusion that my direction, what my direction is in all this is death. Is death? Yeah. And, and to avoid sometimes when I have a forward. Yeah. But, but what I would say is that that's probably an authentic. Uh, like the mind kind of really getting the flavor of what's being taught. But instead of, because what the mind normally thinks of of death is the physical death of the body. So bring it right into the psychological death. It's the death of the 
the conditioning of the mind, the part of the mind that's conditioned to like dualistic notions. That sort of the that momentum or the identification with that part of the mind has to die. And of course it has to die over and over and over again because it will reestablish itself because of its momentum. So there is this sort of death-like experience. And I don't, I'm not sort of, I think it's an appropriate word. I'm not being provocative. I think it really is a kind of, that the quality of surrendering into the experiencing, as Joko Beck was talking about, and out of, you know, having experiences, that is a psychological death. It really takes a real giving up, a real giving up the life of that, I'm the guy having this experience, and into the flow. And it's not so easy. Most people, most people first, accidentally. You know, they're playing pickup basketball with a friend, and they have a few seconds of just the activity and not the person having an activity. And they go, wow, I, I must really like basketball. <laughs> they don't realize what happened, because it happened accidentally. In meditation practice, and as somebody taking on these teachings of the Buddha, we're trying to, trying to understand the science of how to do this so we can do it intentionally and make it our life of kind of dropping out of the habit energy of conceptualizing and into the flow of experience and learning to go beyond the fear that arises in that kind of surrendering. Because it is, we, that part of the mind feels like it's going to die. Of course, it's, it's just a thought. But that thought we're identified with. So it can be quite challenging. So if in your practice that it really feels like you're going to die, don't feel like you're doing something wrong. You're probably doing something right. And if you can, try to notice that's just a thought. Now, that thought packs a punch, but it's still just a thought. And if you see it as a thought, the punch goes away. But if you think it's more than a thought, it is more than a thought. And it's just like a dream. If you're actually in the dream, it's real. You don't know it's a dream if you're in the dream. But as soon as you realize it's just a dream, it loses its punch. It doesn't matter how scary the dream is. If you know it's a dream, really know it's a dream. Now, I know most of us are kind of in between. We sort of believe it, and we sort of believe, we sort of know that it's just a thought. Just like you are in those sort of twilight moments when you've had a really powerful dream, but you're kind of awake but you're kind of under the influence of the dream, too. And it has a, you know, you're, you're pulled by the dream or still reactive to the images of the dream. Thanks for your comments. Mm -hmm. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.